Um, welcome to the last day of the fifth session of the New Austrian School. Uh, so today uh, we have uh, Professor Feketer and Professor Rayo speaking. Professor Feketer will be talking about um, marginal time versus marginal productivity uh, of capital, marginal time preference, and then the discount rate and the marginal productivity of social circulating capital. Those are going to be the first two lectures, and then Professor Ayo will be talking about the 100% reserve, sorry, neither 100% reserve nor free banking, a vindication of the Real Bills Doctrine. And there's no afternoon session. No afternoon session. This is the last session. And there will be a break between my second lecture and the guest lecture. Which will be at 1 o'clock, at uh, 12 o'clock. Uh, well, I try to finish by quarter to twelve, yeah. and then there will be a break, say fifteen, twenty minutes. We can and go on, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We can go on if necessary, because there's no afternoon. Uh, uh, yeah, but uh, some people may not be here. I encourage everybody to come back at twelve, at 12. for the guest lecture. You yeah. see, all right. <clears throat> I would like to refer to Lecture 5, which uh, was an earlier one, but you may still remember that I criticized Mises for his concept of time preference. When you read human action, you have the impression that Mises says that time preference tends to equalize somehow. So all of us here and outside and everywhere else in the world <clears throat> tend to have the same time preference. Well, this is obviously false, but we may assume that Mises had in mind a kind of averaging process. Well, if he did, we criticized that, well, that as well because we said mathematical averaging is not applicable whenever we talk about uh, contact point between the protosphere and the logosphere. And obviously, the logosphere is very much involved here. So what Mises should have done was uh, use the method of marginalism. We talked about that quite a lot in the first third of the lecture series. And the method of marginalism is, of course, the prototype done by Menger and fully endorsed by Mises and all the other Austrians, is the concept of marginal utility. But we also observe that there are a lot of other places in economics where the method of marginalism comes into play. And we paid special attention to two, more than two, but especially two, the marginal productivity of labor and the marginal productivity of capital. 
And uh, we observe that it's definitely not a mathematical <coughs> averaging what is involved in these two concepts. Uh, now, in mathematics, <laughs> there are dozens and dozens of averaging methods, but none of them would fit that particular bill. So, however, if you use the same methodology as Menger did in creating the concept of marginal utility, then you will succeed. So that's what Mises should have done. He should have moved from the concept of, mar of uh, time preference to marginal. marginal time preference. But he didn't do that. You go through human action in any other writings of Mises, you will never see marginal time preference. He keeps talking about marginal, uh, about time preference without the marginal uh, adjective attached to it. <coughs> and this is my criticism of Mises. He should have formulated, since he spent so much time and effort on developing the theme of time preference, and in fact he made it the cornerstone of his uh, theory of interest, that he should have come to that realization that the proper thing to do is uh, introduce marginal time preference. Well, he didn't do it, so it was left to us here at the new <laughs> Austrian School of Economics to work it out. And we did. I'm not going to repeat that, but the point is that the marginal, the concept of marginal time preference is a key idea because it determines, if not the rate of interest, at least the lower limit what we call the floor of the range within which the rate of interest changes. Because if the government or the banks or both in conjunction push down the rate of interest below the marginal time preference rate, then something very important happens. Namely, there is a marginal saver. In particular, we call him the marginal bond holder, because a very high percentage, say 95% of all savings nowadays, takes place in the bond market. So there is a marginal bondholder, and he is going to protest the violation of his, mar uh, his time preference, which we call the marginal time preference. So the uh, government and the banks push the rate of interest below the marginal time preference rate, then the marginal bondholder responds by selling 
his bond. Now this description applies to the gold standard, so these will be gold bonds. The marginal uh, bondholder sells his gold bond, and that's very important, puts the proceeds into gold coins, not in paper money and not in other, he specifically puts the proceeds of the sale of his bonds into gold coins. Because that's the only way to force the banking fraternity and the government and their conspiracy, because that's really a conspiracy, but they have the government and the banks, to uh, uh, rectify the situation. And what happens is that the, when the marginal bondholder sells his gold bond and keeps the gold coin, that will withdraw reserves from the banking system. And the banking system will be short of reserves and it will be forced to contract credit. And as they do, they will have to call the loans and so on. And in, in particular, there will be a pressure on the bond price because of the sale of bonds. And that means the interest rate will creep back up. And if it reaches the marginal time preference rate, then the marginal bondholder comes back and repurchases his gold bond that he sold earlier. And the interesting thing is, let's just notice it, that he buys it back cheaper than he had sold it. So he makes a profit. And that profit is important in this whole mechanism of adjusting the lower, uh, the floor for the rate of interest. And what the marginal bondholder in fact is doing is an arbitrage operation. That's also very important to notice because he's doing arbitrage between the bond market and the gold market selling the bond and buying gold and staying with gold as long as he achieves his uh, purpose which is to bring back the rate of interest to the marginal level at least or higher. So this is the this is what we discussed in greater detail in lecture five and uh, I combined it with my criticism of Mises. He, he, he doesn't go into any of this detail. In fact, he doesn't talk about marginal time preference. Now, in an earlier lecture in this series, lecture three, uh, I pointed out <coughs> that the marginal 
productivity of capital furnishes the ceiling. We talked about the floor, that's marginal time preference. But there is also a ceiling to this range within which the rate of interest uh, varies. And that is determined by the marginal productivity of capital. And the protagonist in this drama is the marginal producer. And the marginal producer is the fellow who is reacting first to uh, rise in the rate of interest. The productivity of his capital is what we call the marginal productivity of capital. And if the interest rate keeps rising for whatever reason, could be natural, it could be a misreading of the economic situation, could be politically motivated. I'm not questioning that now. I'm just saying that there is, let's assume there is a tendency for the rate of interest to rise and overshoot the marginal productivity of capital, then this will have consequences. And the consequences are that the marginal producer is going to stop production. Because it no long, he can no longer compete with the high rate of interest. His productivity is around that marginal productivity level. And there is no way for him to... There will be other producers whose productivity is higher, and they are not affected. It's just the marginal uh, producer. And not only does he stop production, but he is also stopping capital maintenance. There's no point. If he's not producing, why should he spend money and on um, capital maintenance. So there is a saving there. He saves the cost of marginal maintenance. And he may in fact sell some of the marketable tools. Those tools which he can easily sell will probably sell right on the spot. And he might even sell the plant if there is a bidder, there is somebody who is willing to buy. So in other words, he is selling capital goods. Okay? And he is not going to sit on the pile of money which he gets from these sales. He is going to invest these funds where? Market. In the bond market. This means that there are other guys, other producers who are producing it with a higher productivity. So he wants to participate in their earnings. And the way to do that, go to, into the bond market and buy the savings on marginal main, on uh, capital maintenance. And whatever sales of capital goods he had, he will invest in the bond market and get a higher rate, and no risk of uh, uh, fire in the sh uh, shop floor, no risk of uh, labor problems, no risk of uh, anything. He just sits back and 
clips the coupons from the bonds and enjoying himself. It's not a disaster for him, but that's how he will react. And this reaction will put a pressure on the interest rate because he's buying the bond, that means the bond price is going to go up because of the sale of the uh, of, uh, let's go back so he's uh, yeah he's buying the bond right and because of his bidding for the bonds the bond price is going up but that means in terms of the interest rate there'll be a pressure on the rate of interest so the interest rate will be pushing pushed back below the marginal productivity of capital. And when that happens, the marginal producer will come back and will buy new capital goods and starts production again. You see? So what in effect he's doing is he is doing arbitrage between two markets. On the one hand, the bond market, and the other is the capital goods market. He is selling the bond and buying the capital goods. And incidentally, he's making a profit because he bought the bond cheap, and now he sells the bond high. So that's his profit. And, and this is really a marvelous uh, uh, nature given uh, self-correcting mechanism, you see, that cannot be too wide swings for the interest rate. It's confined to a relatively narrow range, uh, and that's how it's going. Now again, I criticize Mises here, because although he does mention the marginal productivity of capital, which is playing a key role here, however, he is very definitely against the idea of connecting the margin, marginal part of the capital to the interest rate. Yes, there's absolutely no uh, connection between the two. He is very categorical about it. I don't think I'm misreading Mises when I say this. He is uncompromisingly uh, of the opinion that interest rate has to do with time preference, but it has nothing to do with the productivity of capital, the marginal productive capital. But I think we are developing a theory of interest here, which is motivated, inspired, by Menger and his idea of the bid-ask spread, in particular bid-ask spread for the bond price, 
And it's not possible to understand the formation of the rate of interest if you are not willing to consider these two extremes, which are similar because there are two arbitrage, there are arbitrage here, there are arbitrage there, but the whole setup is different. The, uh, the uh, source, the forces which are involved are very different. So this takes two different, separate analysis, analysis of the time, marginal time preference in terms of the arbitrage of the marginal bondholder on the one hand and the arbitrage between the bond market and the capital goods market where the arbitrageur, the protagonist, is the marginal producer. So this is the position of the new Austrian School of Economics. I have been advocating that point of view for 10 years and not much <laughs> feedback, I'm sorry to say. But I hope I have been able at least to con convince you that that is really the full picture, which takes both these concepts into consideration. <laughs> now, I would add that it's very tragic that, I mean, somebody else could have come up with the same idea at the turn of the 20th century, because all the material was available. Karl Menger's uh, Principles of Economics by that time was 30 years old, and it was very well known. And, uh, and uh, somebody, a co-worker of Menger or his son or somebody else could have developed this theory of interest. And it didn't happen. And I'm saying that this is very tragic for the following reasons. Uh, tragic from the point of view of world history, I would go as far as saying that. Because since there was no proper and universally agreed theory of interest, this gave a chance to the governments who were trigger happy and they were just happy to go to World War I and have this massacre of people on both sides for no good reason whatsoever. The minor adjustments in boundaries between countries or market, competing for markets is, is no justif it's not justified by the bloodshed which followed. And not just soldiers were dying in the trenches, but civilian population for the first time they, they, were, they gave no respect to the casualties. Women, children could die. That's strategically unimportant. So what I'm saying is that there's a tragic aspect 
that it happened the way as it did happen in the development of the theory of interest because the governments and the central banks and the bureaucracies at the treasuries had a chance. Well, as you see, the proper theory of interest attributes so much to the common man, bondholder, marginal producer, these people have an input into the formation of interest. And they could be elbowed out by the government, by the banks, especially the central banks. So they gave the 100% input, it was in their hands, the formation of interest, common people like you and I and uh, um, others, because we all had what some input, and the government and the banks were supposed to have zero input. And now they just turned it around in a matter of a few years. I would put the starting year 1909, that's when the first legal tender laws were voted in, and they became effective first in France and just a few weeks following that in Germany. That was in preparation of World War I. But people didn't notice. Gold coins were still circulating. That's very interesting. They could get away with that, legal tender laws, without alerting people that, wait a second, I better hold the gold coins because the next step will be to remove them from circulation, which, which is what happened, but only after uh, the war was declared, the World War I was declared. So they took all that power away from the people with a clean sweep and accumulated all that power of governing the rate of interest, centralized in the hands of the government and the central bank. And in doing that, they have fulfilled the, uh, the uh, program of Karl Marx enunciated in the Communist Manifesto of 1848. See, because that's exactly what Karl Marx and his co-worker Friedrich Engels were calling for, that credit should be centralized. Decentralized credit is going to be a bulwark against government incursion into the uh, economy. But as soon as the government finds a way to grab that power, take it away from the people, then the, the road will be open to, to communism. So 
in effect, this transfer of power took place not just peacefully, without any fight, any resistance, but people didn't even, didn't even notice that they were they have been deprived of a, a most important power which they had, and which, for example, the American Constitution guaranteed, because the American Constitution guarantees the um, the uh, uh, the mint. The United States Mint must be open to the coinage of gold and silver. That's in the Constitution, still in the U.S. Constitution. They never had the moral courage to remove it. You know, it's, it's shameful that they are, day, day in, day out, they are trampling on the Constitution. But anyhow, people shrug their sword. Now, if, for instance, the government says freedom of speech, freedom of the press, from tomorrow on, finished. We are not going to have it anymore. It will be 